Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest will be Carolyn McIntyre, who is the administrator of Chautauqua History Alive Festival in Greenville, Judy Bainbridge, retired English professor from Furman, and Dr. Leslie Goddard, who's a full-time historical presenter and does some 200 to 250 presentations a year. And we're going to talk about this year's Chautauqua Festival in the upstate. And the theme is America at the Movies. Have you ever wanted to sit down and have coffee with Mary Pickford? Or discuss Mickey Mouse with Walt Disney? Or find out the true story behind Rosebud with Orson Welles? If so, stay tuned right after this news break.
Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today in the SCANA studio, I have as guests Carolyn McIntyre, who is the administrator of the Chautauqua History Alive Festival based out of Greenville, but it also serves Spartanburg and Asheville. Judy Bainbridge, a dear friend of many years who is retired from Furman University. And on the line, we have Dr. Leslie Goddard, who is a full-time historical presenter. And it's my understanding, Leslie, that you do 200 to 250 presentations a year. That's correct. That is correct. We're going to talk a little bit about Chautauqua in general, Caroline, and then come down to the upstate version. And then, Leslie, we got to find out about how you got a Ph.D. in history, and now you're <laughs> living it, okay? Yeah. All right. Caroline, first, let's talk about Chautauqua and how long it's been in... I know it's been around in the country for over a century, but in Greenville. Uh, We started in Greenville 17 years ago, and we've been doing it every year. We've branched out to Spartanburg and Asheville. We perform in Traveler's Rest uh, Fountain Inn every June around Father's Day weekend. Uh, This year, from the 12th through the 21st, we have 30 shows. Almost all of them are free to the public with morning, afternoon, and evening. We sit out under a beautiful tent in the evening for outdoor shows or down in Falls Park or beautiful Traveler's Rest, Trailblazer Park, and uh, have a great time presenting history live so that the audience can talk to these great people from our past. So when you talk about a tent, you really are going back to the way Chautauqua really started out. It was either open-air tents or these open-air wooden pavilions. And there's something so magical about sitting together in an audience under a tent at night and listening to past history. There's, it's a magical feeling. You're so close. When you sit together in the tent and you talk to an historical figure, you find that we really have more in common than we have in difference. And Judy, how long have you been involved with Chautauqua? From the very first year. Um, Dr. A.V. Huff, who was the dean at Furman at that point, got interested because George Frayne, who had been in the Chautauqua program in the Dakotas, came to Greenville with his wife, who was hired as a religion professor at Furman. George is a magnificent presenter, and he was so enthusiastic about it that he sold A.V. on the idea that Greenville and Furman should be behind it, and A.V. thought it would be just swell if I would do it. (laughs) So I tried my very best. Uh, I was involved calling people like Duff Bruce, who then owned the open book, and other people that I knew who were really enthusiastic about ideas, about history, about writing. And thanks to George and to A.V. and to uh, some checks from some very good friends, we did it the first year, and that was, Caroline tells me, mm, 17, 18 years ago now? 17. A uh, long time ago. I had no idea it had been that long. I remember so vividly that first year. It was out next to the river. This was really before Falls Park, mm-hmm. and there were about, oh, golly, there must have been 35 or 40 people there seated in chairs in the outdoor pavilion right down at River Place. 
and we were so pleased that so many had come. And now, well, Caroline can tell you how many people are involved these days. It's just amazing. That same show tonight um, would be in Falls Park, and we can get up to 1,000 people to come to that. Oh, that's an, that's an incredible growth over the past. And you think with so much out there on TV, iPods, Netflix, whatever, to get people's time, that a 1,000 people will show up in Greenville for a public presentation. One of the most important parts of what we do is audience participation. And there's something about being able to think about something and then open your mouth and ask a question and have somebody else answer it. When Thomas Jefferson answers it, it's different than when your neighbor who has their opinion about it answers it. And it's the audience of participation that's so much fun. Judy, did you ever, I can't remember, did, did you ever do any presentations as a character? No, but one of the things that Caroline and Sally, who, also, who is also deeply involved with it, have done is to have in the winter, the, leading up to the June programming, a series of lectures on the characters that would be presented in June. And last year, I did Clara Barton. And let me tell you, I became a Clara Barton expert real fast. <laughs> read five biographies. And, but, it, it, you know, it worked. But I noticed that some of the people, it was a large audience. It was at the library. And there must have been 200 people There at were least. 300 people there. And I saw a couple of kids who were really ticked because I was not in costume. <laughs> so, you know, too bad about that. And I was really talking from a, more of a scholarly point of view. But it was fascinating, and I enjoyed it. So actually you have previews. If people don't know, for example, much about Clara Barton, they can go to the library. And that auditorium is a magnificent facility, having spoken there, and get and get the information. So they, they don't have to read it themselves. They can come, Carolina, and get... Get the information. It also helps us because we try to not have just big name people that everybody knows something about. Everybody knows a little bit about Clara Barton. Not everybody knows her role in the South Carolina hurricane. But we also trend to have characters that are not well known. When we have this discussion about them, you learn so many. For example, this year we have Gordon Parks, which a lot of people don't know. But since they've had a discussion on them, we know so much more about him. And we realize, oh, that's the guy that had all the pictures in the Life magazine. Now I remember. And therefore, you really want to go after you've had the background. It's almost like you've had you, you read a summary and then you read a text. And it's, the summary really does help. And so it's in kind of a trigger for coming but it also puts things in context. I, I was amazed at the number of people who showed up. I did two of those programs, and there were, there were that many people both times. I was, I was stunned. Before we get to, to, to Leslie, I have got to ask, you, you mentioned Clara Barton and the 1893 hurricane that devastated the, the Sea Islands. Did anybody ask her a question of why she happened to be in South Carolina and why she had to do all the work? I don't specifically remember. Okay. Sorry. No. Well, they, they didn't ask. Of course, she did. She really liked to do all the work. Mm -hmm. uh, Clara <laughs> Barton did not share a whole lot, and was not what you'd call one of your top administrators. 
Well, she also had to step in with the Red Cross because the governor of South Carolina did not think it was worthwhile taking care of the poor African-Americans on the coast who were killed and who lost their farms and everything else. Yep, I've forgotten that, and you're absolutely right. Now, let's go to Leslie. You're going to portray Mary Pickford in this series, is that correct? That's correct, Mm mm-hmm. And then you're going to be Mary Pickford talking about Gone with the Wind. Well, no, I will be myself talking about Gone with the Wind. Oh, okay. Boy, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, Well, well, all right, let's, let's talk about Mary Pickford. There are those of us who are old enough, at least remember our parents talking about Mary Pickford, but I don't know if any millennials or Gen Xers have much experience with her. So do you want to go in character and tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, you know, let me me go out of character just for a minute because you make such a good point about, um, uh, about how people don't don't know her, um, especially younger people today. I am always interested in why certain people are remembered in history, certain people and certain events. And, you know, we often think, oh, well, it was someone significant. Of course they'd be remembered. Or, oh, you know, this person, you know, was the only person doing it. So, of course, we remember them. And it's, it's not often the case. And Mary Pickford is such a good example of that. She was a really the first international film superstar and and she really was a superstar she became famous uh her first big breakout role was in 1914 so 100 years ago and it was of course silent movies this was even slightly before charlie chaplin and she was known Worldwide, um, and then she later she's famous because later she married Douglas Fairbanks, who was at the time the king of Hollywood. What she was the queen, he was the king, and when they went to Europe, they were mobbed everywhere. Uh, London, they were in a crowd that they were so mobbed, he had to pick her up and carry her. Uh, out of the crowd. They were mobbed in Rome. They were mobbed in Moscow. They were mobbed in Japan. Really fascinating idea about how global silent films were, because, of course, you know, there there was no sound. They didn't, um, I mean, there was music, but there was no language. So you change the inner titles in a new country, and boom, you've got uh, easy transition to a new language. So I'm fascinated when people think of silent films, they often, if they know anyone, they'll know Charlie Chaplin, maybe Buster Keaton, but Mary Pickford was bigger than them in many ways and had a really fascinating screen persona. She often played young girls. She She had this face that the camera just loved. And she developed a really natural style of acting, which was not common um, on, among theater actors of the day. She really developed, she was there at the birth of movies. And when she finally retired in 1932, she was so worried people were going to laugh at her for these primitive movies, she wanted to destroy all of her films and bought many of them up, hoping to destroy them. Thank goodness people like Lillian Gish convinced her not to. 
But her films were out of circulation for a long time until about the 70s. Because of that, we often don't remember today just how famous she was. I have yet to pick up a movie magazine between about 1915 and probably about 1930 that doesn't have an article about her. I mean, that kind of fame is just, it just blows my mind. Well, um, wasn't she called America's Sweetheart? She was. She was. A, a movie theater owner put that on his movie marquee. And that, and that is such a good encapsulation. She was the girl that every girl wanted to be, every father wanted her for his daughter. Yeah, it was really seen as the, the embodiment of the American girl. Well, before you get into character, one, one more question, and that is, where are her films now? If somebody wanted to, are they at the Smithsonian or at some university? They, are- some of them are, yes. Some of them have been added to the Smithsonian and the, um, uh, what's the program called? The, the National Film Registries. Um, So they are available. She also was such a phenomenal businesswoman. She was an incredible mogul. Uh, She was one of the four founders of United Artists. When she died in 1979, she was still a multimillionaire and left behind funds for the Mary Pickford Foundation in California. And many of her uh, papers... Film stills and films are there, and they've done a lot of incredible work to keep alive silent film history, which is which is really phenomenal and, and a gift to all of us. So did she ever make a talking movie? She did. She did. She made three talking, uh, four talking movies, uh, none of which was really a big hit. She... She was challenged not only because people were so accustomed to seeing her silent, but she was also getting older. She, you know, she um, people wanted to see her with long blonde curls, and and that was really her persona. So when she cut her hair into a bob, very fashionable, it was a a real breakdown of. Um, uh, her whole screen persona. She she went from being the biggest film star in the world to y- her film career ended, her marriage to Douglas Fairbanks ended, her mother, who she adored, died. She lost everything very quickly and um, moved into her famous home in Beverly Hills called Pickfair. And um, someone said she crawled into a bottle and never came out. It's a, a real tragedy. Okay, well, that's a sad note, but Miss, P- <laughs> but <laughs> but Miss Pickford, I would like to welcome you to Walter Edgar's Journal here in South Carolina, and you'll be coming to uh, our state shortly to meet with a lot of folks, and uh, we'd like to know about what you think coming down south. Oh well, I'm just delighted to be coming there. There's so much about this history that people don't even know. When I was first starting out in motion pictures, you know, we were making so many pictures, and and we thought, oh, nobody's going to remember these in in later years. And, and now I know that that they're available, and people are still watching them. And you have this way of showing motion pictures that even were first shown in little Nickelodeons where you sat in a small room and they put a, a white 
a sheet up on the wall and, and hand cranked the um, the projected images onto there. We never thought that what we were doing in those early years would be something that people would want to know about in in future years. It's totally incredible to me to have been there at the birth of movies and then see people in South Carolina knowing what what's going on with them today. This is always a very delicate question to ask someone as famous as you with so many roles. What was your favorite film over the course of your career? <laughs> Probably the favorite one of mine was an early picture that I did that was called Tess of the Storm Country. Um, and if it sounds a little bit like Tess of the Durbervilles, it's because that was the great inspiration for it. But it's the story of a, a young, feisty girl who fights against the injustices of a, a cold-hearted landlord. And it was one of the first pictures where I really got to be the, the feisty girl, the girl who stands up against the the wealthy, unjust people. And, and I got to do things like, um, oh, at one point, uh, I, I jump on the back of this horrible man who's doing terrible things. And uh, at one point, by this point, I was already famous for having long curls. And at one point, I stuck my head inside a, a big basin of, of suds to wash my hair. And, uh, and the audience at one theater one night actually gasped when that happened. <laughs> that was really the time that I realized what impact movies had. And, you know, it was not long after that. I was walking down a street in New York City, and I noticed a line outside the theater waiting to go in to see Tess of the Storm Country. And about a week later, I went by, and there was no one, no line waiting outside. You could have shot a cannon off in that theater and not hit anyone. And I went back, and I said to my mother, I can't believe the fame that this picture is getting. We're getting fan mail around the world. I can't go out and hold a, a pencil in my hand because people might think it's a cigarette and I can't have that. It was the first time I really knew what, what superstardom really was. Well, let's switch gears and go back to Dr. Leslie Goddard and talk about Gone with the Wind because you're going to be discussing that as someone who has a degree in history, in American mm -hmm. studies, and the theater. And is the movie going to be shown? I'll ask the folks here. Is it... uh, no, we are actually having the movie as a character. And so we will be talking about that. We'll be discussing it. But it's the first time in Chautauqua we've ever had a movie as a character. But we will not be looking <laughs> at it. We'll be talking to it, just as we do with all of our characters. So... so... <laughs> Dr. Goddard's going to be the character gone with the wind. Is that right? Is that I right? ask Dr. Goddard what she's going to do with it. I, I, I think, right, right. I think this, I think this needs some explanation, ma'am. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's how I, here's how I think about it. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm always interested in why we remember certain things, and I'm really interested with 
with Gone with the Wind in this picture, which is, you know, if you adjust for inflation, it remains the top box office um, uh, film of all time. And I'm really interested in how did how did this film get created? How do you create that kind of a legend, a movie that's you know translated into 25 languages and um, you know it was released in theaters eight times since 1939? So you know why? What did this? How did they create this picture? And what has been its impact? It's had a huge impact in how we think about what the antebellum South was like. I mean, you know, when we picture the old South, what do we picture? You know, we picture the the mansion with big white columns and uh, Scarlett O'Hara and her big hoop skirt. And it's especially appropriate right now because we're right at the 75th anniversary of the release of this film. It opened in December of 39 and really played throughout um, 1940. And... That film came out 75 years after the Civil War, give or take a year or two. And um, it has now been 75 years since its premiere. And for a lot of people, that's uh, interesting to think about how our understanding of the Civil War has evolved so much over that time period. And it's, a fa- it's just a great story of how, how this movie got made uh, like a lot of historical characters, you you might know it, but there's a lot of fascinating detail that you might never have heard of. Well, I'm I'm all ears because uh, <laughs> I think folks know some know some things about the great search for Scarlet, and every leading lady in Hollywood wanted to to be, mm-hmm. and then they choose a Brit. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and not even, I mean, she wasn't even as famous as her sister. Uh, right, right, right. What What did someone say? Um, I think someone at the uh, of the Daughters of the Confederacy said, well, better a Brit than a Yankee. <laughs> 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 it, it's true, it's true. And, and you know, the, the, the search for Scarlet, you know, it was, I think it was 1,400 women, um, wrote wanting to be cast. I think they actually read something like 400 women for it, and they gave 19 screen tests. It was this huge, huge search. What a lot of people don't know is that one of the reasons they did that search, other than they did want an unknown, was that um, David Oselznik, who was the producer of Gone with the Wind, very much uh, wanted Clark Gable in the role. I think he realized, as did many in the public, that Clark Gable was the actor needed for that part. But Clark Gable was under contract to MGM, and the only way that MGM would release him, loan him out for Gone with the Wind, was if MGM got the rights to distribute the film, which David O. Selznick finally took a big gulp and then said, okay. But, he, but Selznick had two years left on his contract with United Artists to distribute his film. So he had to wait two years before he could release Gone with the Wind. So the Scarlet Hunt kept the movie in the public eye for two years, which was, which was very smart. Let's talk about some of the, the folks who tried out. If, if my memory serves me, didn't Tallulah Bankhead want to be Scarlet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, 
Tallulah Bankhead very much, and, and Miriam Hopkins um, as well. Those were two of the early contenders, and, and actually they were both legitimately Southerners. Both of them, though, were considered too old for the part, and when uh, Bankhead sort of got a, um, oh, we're interested, but, uh, you know, we want to keep looking, she said, if I was right for the part, you'd cast me right away, take me out of the running. The other big contenders, and there was a great exhibition at the University of Texas, Austin, last year, which has a lot of David O. Selznick's papers. A lot of the early contenders that people remember are Catherine Hepburn, who was very much interested in the part, but was considered, as I'm sure everyone would know today, right, box office poison at that point. She had had four big flops, and many people thought Catherine Hepburn's career was over. So, um, and, and David O. Selznick thought she wasn't sexy enough to keep Rhett Butler interested for 10 years. Betty Davis wanted the part, but Warner Brothers would only loan her out with Errol Flynn as Rhett Butler, and neither Selznick nor Betty Davis wanted that. Betty Davis actually said at one point, Errol Flynn never thought he was a good actor, and I admired his honesty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Betty Davis, of course, did have her chance to be the Southern heroine when... Jezebel, right. Jezebel, yes. But I'm just trying to picture these these characters. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn, Tallulah Bankhead, and yes, she was from Alabama, and my parents and other mobile friends knew her, thought she was something of a disgrace, but that's... The, <laughs> but I'm just trying... She and Betty Davis, she didn't have Betty Davis' eyes, but she she certainly was sultry enough, probably she too... Su- she might have been a better play for the madam, but <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay. There you go. So, how did it end up being Vivian Lee? Well, the legendary story goes that they needed to begin filming in January of 1939 because Clark Gable was only available for a short time period. So, uh, the art director, whose name was Lyle Wheeler, told Selznick, "Let's do this. We will put up false fronts." on a lot of the the old sets on the back lot. We will put some lines of gasoline through them and burn them. And so they did that. They brought in all seven Technicolor cameras in existence. Technicolor was still so new. And filmed this phenomenal scene. I mean, there were flames 300 feet in the air. Uh, The Culver City Fire Department was getting phone calls saying, you know, there's a studio on fire. And allegedly, in the midst of all this, Myron Selznick, who was David's brother, and he was an agent, arrived there, went to his brother, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, David, I want you to meet your Scarlet. And they turned around, and there was Vivian Lee. Now, this story might or might not be totally true. Uh, We do know she had submitted her name the year earlier. But we do know she was there that night. She was screen-tested soon after, and on Christmas Day of 1938, she got the part. It was uh, an incredible wind-up. They had actually done a a contract to Paulette Goddard earlier. She was the closest they could get, but uh, 
she was living in sin with Charlie Chaplin at the time, and that was not considered appropriate. So um, it was really a last-minute thing. I mean, literally, Christmas Day, and they started film work in January. Yeah. Huge run-up. Th- that's wonderful. And I want to turn to, to Judy Bainbridge now because she's done a lot of work on the history of movie theaters in the upstate. And where did Gone with the Wind premiere in upstate? It premiered as a Carolina theater, which was the premier theater in the upstate, 1,400 seats. And that was in Greenville? Of course it was in Greenville. (laughs) Where else would it be in the upstate? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I don't know where it premiered in Columbia, and it may have been first. But in in Greenville, it it was the Carolina theater all the way. It was the absolute top, the top of the top as far as Greenville was concerned. It opened in 1925, and it was the end of the great era of movie theater building in Greenville. Well, describe it. Well, uh, let me see. I have actually a description here from the Greenville Civic and Commercial Journal, something which is not always unenthusiastic. (laughs) They said, for example, As though tinted with the melting colors of the rainbow and freshened by a gentle southern wind, the Carolina Theater Auditorium, fitted out for both stage and screen performances, stands as a monument to the recreational and educational interests of Greenville wrought by a master artist. Then they got complimentary. I mean, this was was really a very big time. Well, well, I mean, mean, what, what was the overall design? Was it... Moorish, it was, or was it? Um, I think it was sort of a um, combination of Moorish, French, Italianate, with perhaps just a bit of classical imagery on the side. There were some ionic columns, I think, down the side. <laughs> uh, it, it was wonderful. It was the height of everything. But you've got to realize, there were so many theaters in Greenville. We had our own little white way, one and a half blocks of Greenville's Main Street had, at one point, at the height, this would have been maybe late 1920s, at least 12 theaters. On Main Street? On Main Street. Wow. It was, it was, it was big time. Well, what happened to this gorgeous theater? In 1972, it finally fell when Greenville's 385 came through and they carved out Beatty Place and they were putting up a marvelous new hotel called, motel, excuse me, called the Downtowner to modernize Greenville. And they it, it went then. It wasn't the last theater to go. The last one didn't go until the early, well, it closed. The Fox it was across the street. The Fox was a, finally, a um, blue film. I don't think it was quite porn, but it was certainly X-rated stuff that was shown there in the late 70s, and it finally closed about 19... It finally was torn down, most of it, in 1982, and that was the last. So from 12 theaters on Main Street to zero. Yeah. 
We're hoping maybe to come back. They're talking about now putting in a theater and a new development down uh, at the corner of Broad and Main. I don't know whether that will happen, but it certainly has been mooted about. But theaters came early. We had our, our first one. I thought it was wonderful that it was called the Unique, because it really was the only one. It came in 1906. But that wasn't the first time that Greenville had a movie. In 1904, The Great Train mm. Robbery, all 12 minutes of it. And they said that women fainted, stalwart men paled, and little children hiccuped. I don't know why, but that's what the report from the, in the newspaper said at the time. But that was that was the first film to be shown in Greenville. Probably, probably the most exciting one, and it, it's a toss-up, would be between Birth of a Nation and the Ten Commandments. That was in about 1924, and both of those were had such a huge audience that they were shown at Textile Hall. Um, well, Textile Hall for Ten Commandments, the Grand Opera House for the Birth of a Nation at the incredible price of $2 a seat. Amazing. Oh. Well, when Birth of a Nation was shown in Spartanburg, the audience got so excited during the chase scene that people pulled their revolvers and shot, <laughs> shot up. <laughs> up the screen. <laughs> Greenville was more genteel. <laughs> <laughs> so what else are we going to do besides Gone with the Wind and Mary Pickford, Caroline? Well, we are talking about how the movies affected America and also how America affected the movies. And we start with Mary Pickford for the silent era. And then we move a little forward in time, and we uh, talk with the uh, creator of possibly the best film ever, Citizen Kane. Orson Welles will be here to talk about how a boy genius creates this great film. Then we move on uh, a little bit farther to Gordon Parks, great life magazine photojournalist, which many of us will remember great stories about Harlem and then being put on the plane to go to France and do Paris uh, fashion shoots. Uh, incredible story. You, you mentioned earlier that sometimes you have individuals that folks might know or not might not know. And what were some of the films that Gordon Parks directed? Well, his very first film is The Learning Tree, which if you haven't seen it, is a beautiful film about growing up in Kansas and it, it's a beautiful film. But he's more famous for Shaft and Shaft's Big Score, which actually saved the Warner Brothers studio. At the time, they were about ready to go bankrupt, and he made them millions of dollars with Shaft. You know, there were black theaters also all over the, the, the state, but in Greenville, there were two. I mean, there were black people were sometimes allowed to sit in the balconies of theaters, but there were two theaters, the Harlem and the Liberty, that were black only. And they brought people in. And there was also a theater called the Branwood, which was between Brandon Mill and Woodside Mill, that... Many, many textile workers felt more comfortable going there. 
movies had this interesting demogra- demographic because they were they were so democ- democratic in some ways. Everyone went to them, rich or poor, because they were very inexpensive, particularly at first. But they bring in everybody. They even showed movies in the textile mill villages every Saturday night, five cents. And you could go to the movies for 20 years or more. You mentioned the separate theaters and the balconies. Let's go back to your to the Carolina Theater, the great theater on Main Street. Did it have an African-American? It had a balcony, which I assume could be used by African-Americans, but I'm absolutely, I'm not sure. Every reminiscence I have read of it has been by someone who is white. I think that African-Americans felt distinctly unwelcome. Well, growing up in Mobile, there was the great theater there was the Sanger, the Sanger in New Orleans and the Sanger in Mobile. And the third balcony, second or third balcony, was for African-Americans. They actually had a separate box office on a side street. They didn't go in through the Grand Lobby. They went up basically not much more than a fire escape to get to the theater. I talked to a, an African-American gentleman recently who said that he only went to the Harlem Theater because that's the only place that he felt real comfortable. Blame him. One of our um, uh, ex-board members uh, grew up in a small town in uh, South Carolina, and his recollection of going to the movies is he and his African-American friends would walk down the street. They all walk in the movie house. These African-American friends would go upstairs to the balcony. He'd sit downstairs, and they'd throw things back and forth between each other. It just was what one did in a small town that had one theater. Ladies, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Leslie Goddard, Judy Bainbridge, and Caroline McIntyre about the Chautauqua history series in Greenville and the Upstate. And its theme this year is America at the Movies. What about some of the others? Are you going to have Mickey Mouse? Uh, we will have his dad there. Walt Disney will be with us, and Walt Disney's also one of that really truly great American stories. All of our people that we're portraying this year left school around 1516. Mary Pickford, of course, left at seven. She was working and supporting her family at seven. Yet all of them went on to have incredible influence of our entire culture. Walt Disney left at, at 16 and then started out drawing and um, ended up having an entertainment empire that just so influenced all of our childhood. Um, it's a great story. Now, when people talk about the, uh, the folks in Silicon Valley, they began in a garage. Walt Disney actually began... Yes. In a garage. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right. One of the great stories about how movies affected America is that it was a place for all kinds of people to start off, have great ideas, have great visions, have dreams. It teaches America to dream, think big, put up on a screen, and the old Hollywood, put a hundred down and buy a car, tomorrow you'll be a star, is a very American feeling about our culture, and that's why movies have been so important to us. Well, you know, those movie palaces with their wonderful names, the Rialto, the Paris, the Roxy, 
I don't think the fox really was very wonderful. Um, but the majestic. These the just, imperial, yes. Imper- yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. I went to one as a child called the palace, and another one that was the orient. It was it was always a dreamland. It was a place to get away. And those Saturday afternoons where it was cool, wonderful air conditioning and nothing else was, and it was a dream of a different world, particularly during the 1930s. It was they were it was tremendously important to the American public. Leslie, I'll ask a question of Miss Pickford. The way you acted with many silence you didn't really need to have the captions on the line. I mean, if, no. you, if you were resisting the villain, your face, your hand gestures helped it, tell the story. It did. The ideal at all times was to convey as much of the story as you could through gestures and through your face. It was pantomime. In, it was ballet. It was a very different experience. Than, than the talkies. I always said that adding sound to movies was like putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't need it, and it, and it takes away from, from some of the, the great beauty of those, those early days. And it was more universal, I in, too, I think. Yes, that, yes. Because anyone could see it. I think that's the reason you have those little one-liners in the silent film, just to make sure that you aren't lost. (laughs) Well, Caroline, with Miss Pickford on the screen, I don't think anybody ever got lost. (laughs) So, Caroline, let's go back again to the festival, and and how does it work? I mean, you're the administrator. How are decisions made? How did you decide? I mean, what did y'all do last year? I can't remember, but what did y'all do? Last year, we did Rising to the Occasion, great stories of people that came from um, modest backgrounds to take a stand or stand up at some point in time and just uh, the Clara Barton story about the hurricane. Without her, people would have just died. And each of the stories were somebody who was called upon and took on the mantle and and rose up to it. Uh, Each year we take a theme and we try to find characters, some well-known, some not so well-known, that would be interested to our audience and that people we'd like to talk to. I mean, don't you want to have a conversation with Mary Pickford now? Um, Wouldn't you love to know who Walt Disney was really like? And he is being performed by someone who is a fourth cousin 12th removed of Walt Disney. So it's a very personal experience. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the questions I'm frequently asked, who are your favorite South Carolinians? And I'll say, let's put it this way, who would I like to have at a dinner party? That's Uh, kind of what our our production is about. It's, It's sitting down, essentially, especially if you're in the tent or in a close environment like a theater, and you're sitting down and you're having a conversation with somebody who just wouldn't you like to have had them for dinner? Um, So all of our characters are people that we'd like to know, and we have a committee that sits down. We work two years in advance to be able to book people like Leslie, who is very popular, and we can only get her certain times. So it takes a year and a half to two years to put a program together. All right, so two years ago you decided that this year's theme would be at the movies. 
there is a national Chautauqua movement, is there not, or association? There are, there are people that perform in the Chautauqua style, and the most important thing that we consider is to make sure that we have an authority that can not only be convincing on stage that you want to talk to, but that has the background historical information. Uh, we very often hire PhDs. We hire people that have studied thoroughly, that know all the ins and outs of the character, because uh, you can get a question of any kind. It can be a, a question from a six-year-old about whether you have a dog or it can be a question from Walter Edgar, who is in our audience and may know more about your character than anybody in the world. <laughs> and he's going to ask you a question. You better know the answer to it. Do the audiences really – have they really gotten into the play of this that they – Oh, absolutely. Um, they love their Chautauqua. They're there to ask questions. They can't wait till the person stops so they can ask their question. And we come from – some of, as A.V. Huff, as Judy mentioned, once said, in the upstate area, they're some of the most conservative and some of the most liberal people in the country live here. And they come to the Chautauqua, they sit together in the tent, and as much as they may argue with each other, they don't argue with Thomas Jefferson. They listen. I would imagine if, if people are coming back year after year, you have to cut the questions off at some point. Yes. And then we always have conversation with the performer afterwards. In the morning, we have morning coffees. Um, at 9 o'clock in the morning, we gather at the Artist Guild Gallery, and we sit and have quiet conversation with whatever. Um, most, most of the scholars come, but we feature one of the characters in each discussion. And in a smaller group, you continue and talk about anything you want to. And, you know, you see these children who come, and that fascinates me. I was so pleased with all of the programs that I have attended to see the number of uh, high school kids and even younger, many of them, of course, brought by their parents, but some who come out of sheer curiosity. But I'll never forget going, I was going to one, I don't think it was Amelia Bloomer, but it, it, it was one of the women's rights women. This was two or three years ago. But it was a most varied audience. Uh, and I was so pleased to see that. Can you tell us what's online for next year? Or is that still a secret? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. Good. Good answer. But you can give us the dates for this year. Uh, you have 10 days. You have two weekends. And on each weekend, we have essentially five shows. And on each weekend, so you can come in from Charleston, have a wonderful uh, uh, weekend in Greenville, and uh, go up to Traveler's Rest or Spartanburg and see five of the shows. Um, but uh, we have 10 days, uh, so there's opportunities. If you want to go during the day, we have indoor air conditioning. And in the evenings, we have outdoor shows. We even have some indoor shows outdoor, yeah, indoor shows in the evening. Um, have a conversation with the people in the morning, go to an afternoon show, uh, go to an evening show, or spread it out over 10 days and catch them any time that you want to. And it's free. 
Ab- yeah, absolutely. Our shows are free. There's a minor charge in the Asheville shows, but all of our other shows, you just show up, sit down in your seat, ask your questions, have a great time. And as Judy said, our favorite audience is when grandparents bring their grandkids and they go home after speaking with Einstein. I had a lady call me up and said, for two weeks, my kid has been talking physics to me. He's eight. (laughs) (laughs) Please give us the dates again. June 12th through the 21st, two weekends starting on Friday night with Walt Disney and ending the next Sunday night, the 21st, with Orson Welles. And you have a website, and we will have that link posted on the Walter Edgar Journal website. So folks can find out more specific information. I'm sure there are folks who just want to meet Mary Pickford. I'm sure that that's the one. (laughs) one And I think Mary Pickford's going to have a good time meeting Walt Disney. Yes. Ladies, are there any last words you would like to add before we sign off today? Judy? I just think that movies are the great leveler. And they put us all in a wonderful place where we can dream, where we can think about a different world together. And it's been a part of the American experience since, at least in Greenville, South Carolina, since 1904. Okay. Caroline? You have to realize that there's only one place in the entire world that you can ever see this show. And it's right here in the upstate of South Carolina. And there's no place else in the world you can do this. Okay. And Leslie from Chicago? I would say for anyone who's had um, a slight interest in history, this is the best way to experience history. It's the closest we get to a time machine. And South Carolina is so lucky to have... One of the greatest Chautauquas in the nation, right in South Carolina. Okay. Chautauqua History Alive Festival. And this year, the topic is America at the Movies. So I want to thank Caroline McIntyre, Judy Bainbridge, and Leslie Goddard for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The whole concept behind Chautauqua of letting characters from history come alive and interact with folks in the 21st century is a fascinating one, and it's obviously become a very popular form of entertainment in the upstate of South Carolina. In many ways, it goes back to the earlier Chautauqua lectures under the stars. You can do that even in the 21st century. And this year, it's all about America at the movies, not just the historical characters, but discussing the impact of American movies on the everyday life of folks, particularly in South Carolina. This is Walter Ridger. Join me next week for more of The Journal.
Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.